One of the true gifts the nonprofit sector offers our society is that it sheds a spotlight on the challenges that so many of our citizens face. It also stands as this universal invitation to each and every one of us to be a part of the solution to those challenges. The sector offers us this opportunity to do something, to do something. We know that there's power in numbers, in a chorus of voices mobilized for change, and that for a nonprofit to be truly impactful, it must build its own army. And I work with so many organizations who struggle with this idea of how do I engage more people um, because we know it's the key to raising more dollars, to recruiting more volunteers, so that you can educate, raise awareness. All of those things are key. So I read this book recently, and the book had this stated mission, quote, the future will be a battle over mobilization. The everyday people, leaders, and organizations who flourish will be those best able to channel the participatory energy of those around them. Hell yes. The authors remind us that power is, quote, the ability to produce intended effects, end quote, and that this ability now rests in the hands of each and every one of us. But you know it's not just about technology. We are changing, too. This book is called New Power by authors Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans. What they call old power asks only that you comply or consume, but new power demands and even allows for more, that we share ideas, create new content or assets, even shape communities. Are nonprofit organizations embracing this or are they stuck in old power? What are the benefits and implications of embracing this new power? Author Henry Timms joins us today. And speaking of power, if we do this right, it should be a powerful conversation. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Henry Timms is the president and CEO of the 92nd Street Y, a cultural and community center that creates programs and movements that foster learning and civic engagement. It's a remarkable place. Under his leadership, the 144-year-old institution was named to Fast Company's Most Innovative Companies list. He's the co-founder of Hashtag Giving Tuesday, a global philanthropic movement that engages people in close to 100 countries and has generated hundreds of millions of dollars for good causes. Henry is a Hauser visiting, visiting leader at the Center for Public Leadership at, ha at the Harvard Kennedy School and a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Center on Philanthropic and Civil Society. With Jeremy Hymans, Henry co-authored the book I mentioned earlier, New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected World and How to Make It Work for You. It was described by David Books in the New York Times as, quote, the best window I've seen into this new world. Henry Timms, I am delighted to have you. Thanks for joining us. Well, what a pleasure it is. So let's let's define, I like vocabulary. Maybe it's my Catholic school upbringing. Let's define terms. Shed a little light for, the, for listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of reading your book. Old power versus new power. So if you think about, uh, old power was, was power like a currency. Right. It was zero sum. We spent it down. It was held by a few people. It kind of downloaded its wishes onto the world. Uh, but new power is, is not like a currency. It's much more like a current. It's something that flows and surges and moves. And if you can push it in the right direction, you can get some extraordinary outcomes. It's much more open and it's much more made by many. So uh, to, to locate the audience, think about the, the different way that, that, that Harvey Weinstein used power. To, to the Me Too movement. So, you know, his, his power was old power through and through, right? He spent down his huge hoard of power, was very leader-driven, he kind of closed up worlds, he had this complete control over an industry. Um, and that's really not the way that the Me Too movement exercised power, you know, begun by the activist Tarana Burke. What's, what's so inspiring about the Me Too movement is it was made by many people. It was open, it was distributed, it surged around the world and continues to surge, not really leader less but leader full full of leaders all around the world who added their voices to the story and made the whole movement stronger so that's the difference between old power and new power the difference between people who are using power as a currency i've got it and you haven't and those people who are working out how to unleash new power that power of the crowd that power of the current 
Um, working it out, I think that's actually something worth talking about as we move along, because it is a work in progress for sure. Um, these two power constructs value different things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So let's think about, if you think about kind of the nonprofit world for a moment, um, there, there was certainly a, there is certainly a sense that for a long time, we, we as a sector had a fairly old power mindset. You know, we had solutions to problems. People's job was to fund us, and we would solve the problems by, you know, presenting our theories of change and our programs, and our programs would make the world better, and, and that's the way that things should run. That was very much kind of the old power mindset. Um, what's beginning to shift now is people are experimenting with newer models where uh, rather than us as institutions kind of being the intermediary and, and knowing all the answers, people are working out ways of engaging crowds around their missions, of, of, of spreading their ideas and agencies into much bigger ecosystems. And, and that's the shift we're starting to see play out. Um, think about, for example, the, the Ice Bucket Challenge, right? It's a really good, I think, a grounding example of new power in the philanthropy sector. So that surged up, came out of nowhere, it spread all around the world. And the reason it it went as well as it did it was because it was very much open people could make it their own it was shareable it was spreadable it had all these characteristics of something that was not the power of the old power which is a program which everyone was supposed to do in the same way but it was a program that everyone got to add their own twist to and share with their friends and their colleagues and that's why i got to the scale it did um i remember obviously i was in i was involved i had an ice bucket it hit on my head and I had, I think at that time, my kids were just either just landing out of high school or coming into college. I was struck by the fact that I could ask many of their friends about the Ice Bucket Challenge, and they knew about it. They knew exactly what it was. They had participated in it. But when I asked them what organization or what, what the Ice Bucket Challenge was in the service of or what ALS was, I got blank stares. And I just wonder, um, how, do you, how do you juxtapose all of that? sort of visibility with so many people that participated and actually didn't know what it was all in the service of? Well, I think that's the, I think that's an easy critique uh, of the Ice Bucket Challenge. And although I think it's actually, a, I think there are lots of organizations who people support that actually, if you, if you push them really wouldn't be able to give you a granular answer on what they do. They like the idea of them a lot, but, yep. but even let's be, let's be unkind to the Ice Bucket Challenge. And let's okay. say, the total number of people they engaged around the world. Let's say that 10% of those people really had a good sense of what ALS was. If 10% of the millions of people who participate in the Ice Bucket Challenge had a sense of what it was, that actually is a very significant impact. So I, I think one of the ways that we need to think about the new power world is we need to shift our metrics a little bit. And in that case, I'm sure the number, for, for what it's worth, I, I made that number up, I'm sure the number is actually much higher yes. than 10%. But, but the, the scale of that idea was the thing which mattered most to it. Uh, and, but I think the, the really interesting question with the Ice Bucket Challenge is everyone in the nonprofit sector at that point, their bosses or their boards said to them, <laughs> why can't we have our own Ice Bucket Challenge? Uh, <laughs> yes, they did. And, and in a way, that's the wrong question. Um, because even for, for, for the ALS Association, this wasn't something that they had planned as a campaign. This, this came out of firefighters and golfers and ALS sufferers, and this kind of you know landed on their doorsteps to some degree. Mm. Um, yep. And I think they've obviously struggled to, to replicate anything like it. So it was, it was essentially a one-off. The question, I think, for nonprofits and, and for nonprofit leaders isn't how do we have our own ice bucket challenge, but how do we develop the skills uh, day after day after day that can start to kind of unleash some of the kinds of mechanics behind something like the Ice Bucket Challenge and get them working for our organization all year round. Because if you think about what the Ice Bucket Challenge really got right, um, you've hit on one of the things already. Um, your, your kids were talking about their friends and they were sharing it with each other. So one, one thing about new power ideas, we talk about this a lot in the book, new power ideas always spread sideways. A, a good idea in the new power world isn't one which you, you put on a billboard and someone gets their attention. A good idea in the new power world is an idea that you create which people want to share sideways with their friends. Yes. So how do you think about that every day of the year for nonprofits? How do you think about the, the interesting thing around the, around the Ice Bucket Challenge was it was an idea that could shift, right? Everyone's Ice Bucket Challenge was different. We could all add our own creativity. In a world where everyone wants to participate, creating uh, ideas and campaigns where everyone has a role to play more than simply give you money, but they actually have a, a creative role to play, is something that's stimulating a lot of growth and a lot of action. And then I think perhaps most importantly, 
what, what the Ice Bucket Challenge did so well was that kind of moment of kind of connection that we all felt that we were connected to each other and we were felt connected to a much bigger cause. And contrast those dynamics to the old power annual fundraising letter, which says, Dear Mr. Timms, uh, I hope, given it's the end of the year, that you'll support the 92nd Street Y again to support our critical programming, which makes a huge difference in the community. Please send $200, and maybe one day in three months' time, we'll send you a receipt. Right. That, that, that's the old power world um, at, its, um, at its worst, as a pastiche. But I think what's so interesting about the new power world is that the, the mechanics behind Ice Bucket are the mechanics that we should be thinking about unleashing every day in our nonprofit, uh, but we should stop wishing for our own Ice Bucket Challenge. I mean, the other thing that I said to my kids was think about how much money the Ice Bucket Challenge was able to invest into the movement to find a cure to ALS. Whether you know what ALS is or not, presumably they were going they were flooded with dollars that was going that were that they were going to be able to use not only to raise awareness but also to presumably fight for a cure. Yeah, that's right. And actually, certainly the way that they talked about the Ice Bucket campaign, which I thought was very smart, was how, how much of it was focused on research. And, and they reported back some very promising advances based on that research. So that was definitely the way the ALS Association thought about that. And I thought that was a really good example of another new power skill, which is, you know, from time to time, these, these kind of big storms of new power are going to land on your doorstep. And being able to work out how to meet the moment is a, is a key capacity for any nonprofit. And the ALS Association, once they had this huge surge of new power, they worked out some really smart ways of talking about the value of, of that investment. I'll give you another example I've been very inspired by. There was a group of uh, Girl Scouts in, in, in Greater Washington who had been offered $100,000 by a donor. And the donor said, look, I'll give you $100,000. This is a very old power gift. I'll give you $100,000 but you have to promise you won't spend any of the money on transgender girls. And the Girl Scout troop, to their great credit, uh, sent the money back. And they said, we, we, we aren't going to accept uh, the money with those conditions. And they then launched a campaign called Hashtag For Every Girl. And what they said with the campaign is, look, we, we we're offered $100,000 with, with this string attached. Um, that isn't what we stand for. We believe in, in every girl for every girl. Uh, and they launched this campaign, which was a crowdfunding campaign and also a, a, a branding campaign, essentially, to talk about their values. And yes. they raised over $300,000 from the crowd to support the Girl Scouts in all their incarnations. Now, that's a really good story at much smaller scale than the Ice Bucket Challenge, but it's a, it's, it's a key story about how nonprofits need to understand new power. That in the moment that that money was offered to the Girl Scouts, they had a very clear and strategic sense of how do we turn this into a bigger opportunity? How can we turn this gift, which we don't like the look of, into a moment of solidarity for our community? And, and, and beyond the money that they raised with that, with that campaign, they also created a buzz around their work. They reaffirmed their values. They, they sent a message out to their crowd, which created so much value around that particular truth. That's a good example, I think, of a nonprofit who got new power rights. That's a fantastic example, actually. Um, so I have clients sort of all around the country, across every sector, large organizations, very large organizations, small ones. It's not all one thing or the other. How does a nonprofit organization who's sort of exploring or experimenting with new power manage the tension? between old power and new power, because it does strike me that, frankly, a lot of nonprofits are built on old power. Um, and the control, yeah, the control of the message, for example, uh, a fear of having a blog on your site for fear that there's going to be some kind of message that you haven't, your communications director <laughs> hasn't approved. And so I guess my question is, can new power exist to build a movement and a base while there's old power kind of running the organization? Uh, yes, I think it can. And and I also just want to, before I uh, give you, a, I hope, a clear answer on that, I want to underscore one thing, which is the, 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 the work that we've done here in the book that I've written does not say new power is good and old power is bad. Mm -hmm. right? There are lots of moments where 
we desperately need the intervention of expertise and, and professionalism and evidence. Like, in a way, it's very hard to think of a time in recent history where we've needed more people who have true sexual knowledge and evidence-based opinions and expertise to have their voices being heard. The, the problem is uh, that those people actually are, are often the people who aren't very good at deploying new power tools. So there's a reason that the climate deniers can often make more progress than the climate scientists. There's a reason the anti-vaxxers can change minds, in some cases, more effectively than health professionals. So one thing we really need, like, old power expertise to do is to get their heads around new power. And, and I'll give you an example from my own organization. So I run the 92nd Street Y. It's a 144-year-old institution. You know, we have a $65 million budget. We have, uh, you know, a, a, a rich and proud heritage and history. Um, but, but, you know, we were, we were one of the organizations who launched Giving Tuesday. So after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, uh, I think it'd be familiar to, to many of your listeners, we launched yes. the idea of Giving Tuesday. Now, if you think about how you would have launched Giving Tuesday in the old power world, you'd have called it the 92nd Street Wise Giving Tuesday. You'd have totally. put our logo in the middle of it, and you'd have insisted that anyone who participated in Giving Tuesday did it in the way that we're telling you to do it, and, and made sure as well that we got credit in the second paragraph of any press release. And that would be the old power mindset around Giving Tuesday. And if we had done that, it would have scaled nowhere. No one would have participated. It wouldn't have worked because we would have taken up all the space for our own institution. Instead, with Giving Tuesday, from the start, we, we took our brand off it. There was no 90 seconds rewired branding on Giving Tuesday. And it was because it was opened up like that that people could take it and make it their own. So I'll give you a couple of examples from the, from the nonprofit sector. Um, University of Michigan turned Giving Tuesday into Giving Blue Day uh, around their courses. <laughs> and they raised over $5 million last year, I think, with over 2,000 new donors. Um, now, in the old power world, if someone takes your brand and, and changes it from Giving Tuesday to Giving Blue Day, what do you do? You, you sue them, right? Cease and desist. <laughs> you, 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 you've shifted the message. Right. But in the new power world, that's a sign that something is happening which is actually going in the right direction. And, uh, I'll give you another. Giving Tuesday is now in, in 100 countries. In India, uh, they've taken Giving Tuesday and they've decided not to do it on Giving Tuesday. Instead, they're doing it uh, on October the 2nd on Gandhi's birthday. So again, in the old power world, you'd say, look, we have a messaging calendar. This is supposed to be the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. You're yeah. not falling in line. You're part of the coalition. But of course, our perspective on that is that actually by them doing it on, on Gandhi's birthday, the team running this in India, I think it will be more impactful and that will be better for the sector. And we think that's terrific. So that's a very different way of thinking about the world than, than, the, than the old power defaults that we all have. And, and so many of our programs at the 92nd Street, why now? Giving Tuesday is one of the, the larger ones. So many of the programs follow that uh, philosophy that our job is actually to, to take our brand off them quite a lot so that other people can own them. Our job is to create programs that other people turn into more interesting initiatives. So it's not just us creating programs and other people consuming them. It's about us creating a context that other people can grab and make more interesting. Uh, and we think a lot about that work. And, and look, we don't, we don't get it perfectly right all of the time. But, but certainly, to a large degree, the institution is thinking on an ongoing basis about when to use old power and when to use new power. And that would very much be my recommendation for, for your listeners. And it's certainly the recommendation of the book, which is um, your old power skills could not be more important. They, they're going to keep you coasting and keep you motivated for years to come. But we also all have to learn this new set of skills, about how you build movements, about how you can get your ideas to spread, about how you can get people to engage in your work. We have to learn those new power skills to go alongside our old power skills, and the best organizations can blend the two together. So I, I, um, I, I need to keep talking about Giving Tuesday because I'm fascinated by this because of two, th two things. So the first thing is, before I read this book, I had no idea that the 92nd Street Y incubated Giving Tuesday, if that's the right verb to use. And I find myself saying, as a, someone who used to run a large nonprofit, so isn't that a missed opportunity that so many people don't know that the 92nd Street Y uh, launched Giving Tuesday? Or am I like kind of talking out of the old power side of my mouth? Well, it depends. On, I look, I think there are, I, I think definitely there are people, and I think it's true of people in art in the 92nd Street Y's world who 
uh, said then and probably would still say now, look, this is this, you know, you're someone who's, who's a leader inside the sector. So this isn't just people outside the sector. You're inside the sector and you didn't know of its attribution. Correct. There are people who will say, like, that's a really big missed opportunity. We could have really done a lot for our brand if we had taken up more space. I think my argument to that would be, one, if we had have done it, wouldn't have scaled. Because if this had been all about us, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have left room for other people to, to feel good about it. And secondly, and I think this is actually more important, there is nothing in the mission statement of the 92nd Street Y which says our job is to be more famous. <laughs> read the mission and, and, and for what it's worth, that's true of every nonprofit who is listening to this podcast. No one's mission statement says be more famous. Uh, no, yes. uh, fair and enough, I, Henry. I mean, I think that's true, but but it, it certainly the more people know about your organization and the and and the impact that it has, the more the more in people you engage, the more money you raise, and the more good work you can do. Right. So it's not necessarily about well, fame. Well, it depends. It depends on which people you're talking about. So uh, the, the I don't think with Giving Tuesday that it matters. I, I think there is a small number of people. Um, who are closest to the 92nd Street Y, who have been our longstanding donors or new donors, who know perfectly well that we were involved in Giving Tuesday, and they're very proud of the institution and they want to fund that. Yep. But I don't think it matters in Michigan. I don't think it matters um, you know, for people who are outside our world. I don't think we have a retail job to do with this campaign. I think it's actually a good example of like the people who know us closely know what we're up to because they're keeping a close eye on the Y. But we didn't need to be tied to this in the wider world. And I think that's the lesson. And also, I'm become a realist. I raise money in New York City. I understand cutthroat fundraising, right? So don't, <laughs> don't think of me as too don't think of me as too altruistic in this sense. Um, but the truth of it is that the 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 that we did the the less we took credit for this campaign, the bigger it got, and the bigger it got, ultimately, the better we did as an institution because the people who do know that it's us really really feel very proud of that. Like as as if you think about the Ninth Secretary Y as a Jewish organization serving people of all backgrounds, right. uh, the people closest to the Y right now who know that we've done this and this is on the way to being the first global day of giving, they feel tremendously proud that our team is leading on projects like this. Right. There's a very interesting point. Now, I the second piece on Giving Tuesday is um, – I'm imagining the world the world in which uh, a CEO lives where you launch a project and you have to tell your board about it or you're telling your board about it and you're super excited and your board members are <clears throat> largely, I guess, maybe yours aren't actually, maybe that's a key, you can tell me, but largely sort of from the old power world and you come in and you talk about this incredible program that is actually going to be unbranded. And I, I tell me about the conversation in the board. Maybe you didn't even. Maybe you asked for um, forgiveness, not permission. But I, I can't even imagine that conversation in the boardroom. Tell me about that. Well, I think the, the, I mean like all these ideas that they're never beginners massive campaigns. They're beginners like unlikely successes. So I think that's probably true. Giving Tuesday, like, you know, there are lots of ideas we have like Giving Tuesday. There aren't very many of them that have scaled in the way that Giving Tuesday has. Now. A lot of them have, but not quite to that degree. So I think the, the board wasn't super engaged in the kind of sign-off on that. I remember, we, I remember actually there were some board members who we talked to about when it was very infant. It was incredibly encouraging because I think they, were, they liked the scale of ambition around it. But there, there wasn't a kind of um, should we, shouldn't we campaign. By the time Giving Tuesday was out there in the world, after it existed, there was certainly a conversation with some board members around like the, the wise role and the wise credit. And I think that conversation is ongoing. I mean, there are still people, I'm sure, who feel like we could do a lot more with, with you know, quote, taking credit, close quotes. Right. Um, but I, I'm just convinced that for us, and look, we do this a lot now, a lot of our campaigns, um, we, we either have reduced our brand or taken it off altogether. Uh, they get to such a greater scale than they would otherwise. And, and ultimately, we spend a lot of time, if you think about the nonprofit sector, we all spend a lot of time on logo size. Right, how big is our logo going to be and where it's going to be? And that just doesn't seem to me as actually the, the, the right kind of primary question. And to, again, to the board's great credit now. Uh, and, they, and look, we, the, the board, you know, I think they have now, they have an appetite for innovation now at the 92nd Street Wire that every board meeting, it, essentially the expectation is what's coming next. You know, what have, what have you got coming down the pipe next, which is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to reimagine our model in a new way? And I think that's that, that the key question with new power in general, it's not just for like, okay, finally, you know, do we have to get our heads around how Twitter works? But but it's really about 
are we creating new models around how we engage people in our work? That, that seems to me the really important question. So I'll give you an example from, from our work. Um, we just, um, we had the Jewish New Year. So we had the high holidays here at the 92nd Street Y and the, right. the rabbi, uh, Peter Rubenstein, who runs that, he created this amazing thing called High Holidays at Home, which was essentially an interactive Facebook community for people to, uh, to observe the Jewish holidays as part of an online community. And so he hired these digital rabbis who created a closed Facebook group who for a couple of weeks leading up to the holidays themselves engaged with people about their stories, their Jewish journeys, where they had come from, what they were learning, where they wanted to go next. And he built a community of over 2,000 people who are part of this group now who collectively came together from all around the world to learn more, share their opinions, share their views, and engage in the holidays. Now, the Night Century Y has, has had, you know, uh, annual services here for the Y for 100 years. But this is the first time we've essentially reimagined the nature of that worship uh, using Facebook to get to a point that we think is profound. And, and that's where new power lies, is you think about all this amazing technology we have in our world. At our best, how do we use this technology to give people bigger roles to play? And I think that's the, the key lesson in this work. Lovely. Um, we are talking with Henry Timms. He is the president and CEO of the 92nd Street Y, a cultural and community center that creates programs and movements that foster learning and civic engagement. He is also the co-author of a book called New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyper-Connected World and How to Make It Work for You, described by David Brooks in the New York Times as the best window he's seen into this new world. Um, the most interesting chapter for me, I, was too, I mean, all the chapters are interesting, was the chapter you called How to Build a Crowd. And, and I, I feel like it's something our listeners so, are so hungry to understand more about. And you talk about five steps to building a new power crowd. And I wondered if you could, um, you know, sort of relatively expeditiously take us through um, through the five of them and, you know, sort of bring them to life a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. So I think I think when we think about kind of getting a, if you think about the, you know, a nonprofit looking to get people behind the work that you do, we see kind of five key steps. Step number one is who are your connected connectors? So who are those people who you know who are both connected to each other and then connected with the world? What's the kind of core group of people who might start getting your world out there and spreading the word? If you look at where the, um, the Ice Bucket Challenge began, uh, just as an example, um, the, 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 the key, some of the key early players there were groups of golfers who, uh, who got the ice bucket bit moving. They, that was their big addition. And then, and then groups of ALS sufferers who then started to spread the word. The combination of those different kind of groups really got the campaign off the ground. So when we talk about the crowd, we often get lost in this idea that we should be reaching everybody. But often the place to start is who are your connected connectors, those people who are kind of deeply connected to you and deeply connected to each other and deeply connected to the world. Um, the the a, second um, thing is kind of how do you build a new power brand? The, uh, so if you're thinking you about the, you know, engaging you... people, if it's all about you and it's all about your organization, it can be very hard for people to get, get to excited about it right so one of the things which a new power brand does well is it gives you something that you can kind of adapt and change and make your own so i'll give you an example recently think about the me too movement you know the me too movement was something that everyone felt like they owned everyone who was a part of that movement could grab it they felt like they could take it somewhere they felt like they had an owner of that brand the the very idea of brand is actually very old power one if you think about the idea of brand it comes from when we used to uh, and people still do this, of course. They used to, you know, get irons and get them very hot and then brand their ownership mark on the side of animals. I don't think that's the right way to think about your relationship with your constituent. So a, a new power <laughs> brand is one, I think, which doesn't stamp your identity on others, but is actually one where other people stamp their identity on you. The, the, the huh. third is, is the idea of, of lowering the barrier. So often we um, can roll our eyes at you know, light lift actions. People will say, well, that was only a like, or those people aren't paying attention, or they're only watching 90 seconds of the video. Yep. There are all these critiques of people because they're doing kind of light lift actions. But, but actually, light lift actions are often the way you get people involved. The way you get people through the door isn't, you know, getting them straight to setting up their own, you know, association around your organization. 
one of the ways you'll get them through the door is the first time they like something or share something is actually their first step on a longer path. So I think that's uh, important. Mm -hmm. And then fourthly, starting there, how do you get more out of people? So how do you then build people to give them more agency and get them engaged? So let's think about the example of TED, which is a good a nonprofit that does this so well. You know, if you think about TED, obviously you can like a video or you can share a video, and that's a good step into their world. But what's so smart about TED is they then invite their crowd to do much more than just like or watch a video. If you want to translate a video, you can do that for TED. If yep. you want to create your own TEDx event, you can organize your own TEDx event and, and get it going in the world. If you want to create your own TED Talks, you can start thinking about how you want to do that. So what an organization like TED does so well is they get people through the door through light lift efforts, and then they structure ways to engage people even more so. And then finally, we talk about the idea of, of, of being an organization who is able to kind of capture the storms when they are, uh, emerge. So uh, you remember the example when during the Super Bowl, the, the lights went out in the Super Bowl and uh, an Oreo put together very quickly a dunk in the dark campaign. Right. And, and through the smarts of their social media team, they started a bigger conversation than many of the people who had bought very expensive TV ads during the Super Bowl commercials. And the reason they had done that is they had a new power capacity internally. Uh, I was talking to a big um, refugee agency recently who were, who were speaking very honestly and saying, uh, look, it takes us five days to get a press release signed off internally. <laughs> um, we, we, we can't respond in the moment. So, so often what happens with new power is these big surges happen around the world, these big moments where your issues are front and center. One of the questions for nonprofits is, are you able to pivot quickly enough that you can respond in, in the way that Oreo did? And, and, and honestly, I think because of a lot of the old power bureaucracy in the nonprofit world, often it takes us days to get to consensus because there's so much internal sign-off. So I think we should think quite carefully about those kinds of factors too. Um, so, yes, because inside an organization, um, there is an understanding that people come to work at nonprofits to have a voice. And so if you, if that is the, if that's a premise, the, the way that it, the way that it currently exists, maybe old power ish is you, is you gather the voices of others. And by the time you've gathered them, you've missed the moment. Um, yeah, and... I think that's right. And I think that is right. And I think there is, look, there's a, clearly there's a, a premium we should put on inclusivity and Correct. making sure voices are heard. But there's also a premium to be able to move agilely and move quickly as an institution. And, and one shouldn't outweigh the other. And part of running a nonprofit, and look, we don't get this perfectly right here all the time, but I, I know that's the right question, which is how do you get that balance right? The um, connected connectors, uh, which was your first step, rings uh, rings to me a lot about uh, the tipping point and Malcolm Gladwell and the difference between a connector and a maven and how social change happens. So I found that very interesting. I also, in a class that I teach at, at the Annenberg School, this notion of lowering the barrier, um, we uh, I actually, my students... Um, uh, usually read the sort of the article about slacktivism. Uh, Frank Rich wrote about it and, uh, you know, about the the issues in Egypt. And so there's, there is a lot of um, uh, healthy debate about whether a like actually means anything. And clearly you think it mean it, it is, it means, it only means something if you do something with it. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, but I, I, I'm honestly not sure it is that healthy debate it, it, in the sense that like the, the kind of eye rolling, you know, slacktivism, the Internet's trivial, all young people can't pay attention. There's such a kind of cliched uh, attack on um, both the young and the digital, which I don't think adds very much to the debate. Like, I, I think what does add to the debate, I think there's definitely trivial activities on the Internet. There's no question of that. But the fact is, even those trivial activities, this is where people are spending their time. It's, yep. it's, it's something like the average young person now is spending like an hour a day on Facebook, some, some crazy statistic like that. And so we've got two, we've got, you know, we as a sector have two responses to that. Number one, we can roll our eyes and say, well, they ought to be doing much more than that. And why aren't they joining clubs? And why aren't they being the deputy secretary of their local Lions Club? <laughs> or we can say... Um, how are we going to get some of that? How are we going to get some of that mind share? How are we going to get part of that hour for the causes we care about? 
Right? Our job, I think, isn't to kind of point our fingers at, at, at young people for not paying attention, but to become relevant in ways that I think the sector at its worst isn't. And so I, that, that seems to me the more healthy debate. And, and, and perhaps the place to start that is, is, is to ask some bigger questions around feedback and, and feedback loops. One of the one of the really interesting things is actually that it, one way of thinking about what, what people expect from the new power world is they expect much better feedback loops. So if you think about how yes. something like Instagram works, right? If I, if I take a picture of myself now, I promise I won't do this, but if I do say, sitting <laughs> in my office saying, having a great conversation with Joan Gary about the big future and nonprofits, and I then post it to Instagram, within a minute, uh, 25 people will have liked it three people would have said, hey, I love her podcast. And I'll get this kind of groundswell of immediate and positive and, uh, and, and kind of peer-based affirmation from, from my social network. Mm-hmm. And that will feel very trivial, but actually those kinds of feedback dynamics are what people expect of the world now. And so many nonprofits actually won't provide anywhere near that kind of feedback loop. Like you won't know where your money is going. Yep. You won't really get much engagement from the institution. It will be a long time from your donation for you really hearing back about where your money went. And so, so much of the battle today is understanding that, that this battle for feedback is part of the mechanics. And so you look at someone like Donors Choose, and I really admire Donors Choose. Think about how, how well they get those feedback dynamics right. So you get to engage directly with a teacher who you care about. You understand immediately what his or her need is. You hear back from the people you serve. Um, if you give money to donors choose to support a classroom project, you'll get letters and photos from the kids you've helped. And you right. have this kind of wonderful kind of experience as a donor, which makes you so much more and gives you so much more than the old power world ever did. So I think as we start thinking about these kinds of worlds, you know, people are going to waste time on the Internet. The question for nonprofits is how can we make some of that time more valuable? When I hear you talk about the five steps to building a new power crowd, um, I a lot of what I'm hearing around new power, words I wrote while you were speaking, was the organization has to allow for creativity, innovation. It has to allow for... Um, it has to allow the organization to be more nimble, potentially at some, I guess, maybe at some risk. Um, but how is there a, it seems to me that there's a pretty direct connection when you talk about new power to innovation and creativity. Yes? Yes, 100%. Yeah, and I, and I, I, I feel like far too often institutions that get big and are, are sort of old power-ish um, are actually very um, risk averse, and I joke a lot that organization most nonprofit organizations are in the business of changing something, <laughs> right? Changing an attitude, changing a law, uh, ending an illness, and I often find that people inside nonprofit organizations are some of the most change resistant people I've met. I don't know if you've, I mean, I, I think it's a, I've always found it a really interesting irony. I, look, I think that's largely true. Um, and I think people are very interested in changing the world, but sometimes not as interested in changing themselves. I think that, <laughs> that can be problematic. But I think I'd say something else too, which is I see a different nonprofit world than the, the stereotype often allows. You know, one of the privileges of working on Giving Tuesday has been Giving Tuesday, like it, 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 it's essentially an innovation experiment to some degree. There was a, we did some re- research on the uh, on the Giving Tuesday community, and I think seventy five percent of nonprofits said they tried something new with Giving Tuesday. So th- there, there is an idea that like we you know we don't change and the sector won't shift, but actually there are lots of of people you run into who are doing amazing things inside their institutions and outside of institutions to kind of reimagine their models, try new things, to engage. The, so I would actually see, I think the sector itself is actually much, much more entrepreneurial than, than organizations often get credit for. Very I, I would say this, however. I think one thing I've heard again and again from people in the sector is how often they feel their bosses won't let them do X or Y. Yes. And I think that's a real problem. And I think, look, for, for often there's good reasons for that, right? Every organization can't be kind of complete chaos of everyone doing their own thing. But I do think that in a world where 
you know, at 16 years old, you can be a movie maker, you can be a funder, you can be a banker, you can be a producer, you can be a donor. People come into the workplace now, have such high expectations of participation. And one of the jobs of any nonprofit is to work out how more people can have more ideas more often. And that does mean that the idea that you have three, you know, three big campaigns a year and they all come from the chief marketing officer, that logic just isn't going to hold up. It, it also doesn't allow enough voices into the conversation. Like what becomes interesting when you can innovate at scale is you're hearing from many, many, many more people. And I think that's where we need to get to next, which is to recognize that there is huge entrepreneurialism and energy and creativity in our sector, and to recognize that we need to make some shifts to allow more of that to be released. You, you and again, raising... that's the book. The book, the book very much digs into these kinds of issues, which is one of the problems, I think, is we, we often assume there are only two paths forward. We can have complete control, or we're going to have complete chaos, right? You've either got everything's going to be the way it was, and we hold it all together, or you open up the doors and everything goes crazy. There are lots of examples of organizations who are kind of finding that middle space, who have a high degree of control, but also are working out ways to engage lots of people in their missions. Um, look at Crisis Text Line. Crisis Text Line is something I admire enormously, which is essentially a, a platform for uh, people to volunteer to support uh, teenagers largely, but also younger people, who, uh, who are in crisis. And it, it, it kind of reimagined what used to be the kind of the, the hotlines you would dial up when you have problems. Huh. And they've done that at scale with this amazing volunteer army of people who are dealing with life and death situations. Now, that is such a great example of the way that you can think about new power taking on some of the most serious issues in our world. And that uh, tech service is available 24-7. A lot of the old phone lines, you know, used to finish at 6 o'clock in the evening. Sure, um, leave a, anyone right, leave a message. Anyone teenagers know that te teenagers' problems don't finish at 6 o'clock in the evening. So, no. so you start to see that the capacity of these kinds of new power movements when they emerge can, can be incredible. And, and, and to go a step further, they also then create this kind of rich data. And Crisis Text Line, much of their groundbreaking work has actually been the data they've created right. and, and, and offered to the field, which is helping people understand some of the, the human dynamics behind a lot of these crises and what they add up to. I want to go back to something you said about um, folks inside organizations and um, about how the new power manifests itself and whether the person on top, you know, sort of the CEO is really in charge. And I wonder, um, I was kind of curious about your observations about unionizing within nonprofit organizations and if that is, um, and what do you think about that and how it relates to this old power and new power structure? Because I have seen organizations unionize because, as in reaction to feeling as if they are not uh, <clears throat> being given the opportunity to participate. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I think the, I think truthfully, you see a lot of organizations who are being supercharged by CEOs who are thinking about the world in very new power ways. And I think you see lots of organizations who are being held back because their CEOs, however well-intentioned, uh, just aren't creating an environment or, or a culture where, where they're, getting the, the most out of, of their employees in the wider world. So I, do, look, I think that's definitely true. That the, There's something of an irony in the sense that new power gets much easier if the CEO believes in it, right? So for something which is essentially encouraging bottom-up dynamics, it's good if, if it has cover from the top. So I would say I think that's definitely the case. Um, having said all that, I think any organization right now, even one run by the most kind of old-school, old-power CEO in the world, recognizes they need to change. Yeah. And throughout an organization, you're going to see people who are thinking about new ideas and trying new things and trying quite low stakes experiments that can often pay off quite big. And I often when I look at any organization, you know, even one you feel is kind of very stuck in the 20th century, inevitably there are going to be some people there who have some kind of small ideas about how things could be different. And getting those people moving is something which I think any any middle manager can be really helpful with. Agreed. Um I guess I have two final questions and then we'll let you go. Um, there's a whole chapter you've dedicated in this book to leadership. And I just wondered if you could just speak for a couple of minutes about 
What does leadership look like in this nonprofit organization that's creating this nice balance between old power and new power? I mean, you talked a little bit about sort of the person at the top needing, needing to be sort of receptive to the fact that there's a different kind of power and embracing that and potentially, you know, have, uh, um, embracing creativity and innovation. But um, what are the skills and attributes of a, of, of a great leader in this model and where do you find them? Well, I'll give you an example from the the Giving Tuesday community is, is a fascinating one because obviously it's a very kind of new power movement. And and my colleague Asha Khan, who who leads Giving Tuesday, she she's done some thinking around what makes a great Giving Tuesday leader. And I think what makes a great Giving Tuesday leader is really what makes a great new power leader. So if you think about Giving Tuesday, the, the leaders of Giving Tuesday campaigns whether you know, you're overseeing a whole country like Giving Tuesday in Singapore or whether you're overseeing a whole region like Giving Tuesday in Baltimore or whether you're running a campaign for your local humane shelter. Any of the people leading those campaigns uh, have to have a series of qualities to get the most out of the crowd. They, they have to be um, very entrepreneurial, right, because it's all about trying new things and connecting in new ways. They have to be quite low ego in the sense that these aren't people who need to be the center of the stage all the time or take up all the space or kind of engage in, in the ways that it's all about them. And, and I think our sector has rewarded those kinds of leaders quite a lot, but I don't think new power does very often. Yes, interesting. And they need to be highly collaborative. So they need to be people who genuinely can get ideas from others, engage with people, get the best out of their colleagues, get the best out of the crowd. And so there's kind of a combination of the, the new power leader to, to me, you know, she looks very entrepreneurial. Um, typically quite low low ego, almost always highly collaborative. Those are the kinds of leadership skills that work in a world where everyone else wants to participate. Because if it's all about you, there's really no space for other people to own. Yeah, no, that I I think that's wonderful advice, and I hope that folks are really listening to that um, because I'm not always sure that that's. That, that those are some of those things appear on the the search committee's list of attributes, but the where they appear on the list uh, might be higher today um, than they were at one time. So I have one last question for you, Henry. So let's let's assume I've got someone listening who's saying, um, "Oh crap, <laughs> like I'm not doing this very well." Um, and what everything Henry is saying sounds like so great. Like I should, I should be there, but I'm so not there. Are, are there a, a piece of advice about some first steps somebody somebody should take? Well, I think you, you you've opened the door to this answer, which is the first step is to buy yourself a copy of New Power, uh, <laughs> how power works in our hypothetical world. So, number one, buy the book. Um, because we really did, we wrote the book for, for, for practitioners. Um, yes. We really wrote it as a guide for exactly that person, which is, look, is I'm not like a thought leader. You know, I'm, 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 I run a big institution. I do this work every day. We wrote this book for, for, for real people to use in their day jobs. So that's step number one. Step number two is then engage with other people who are thinking about this. One of the great things about um, our world now and I think one of the great things about new power is you can very easily start to connect with people who are taking on the same challenges you're taking on. So even if you're feeling like your organization is kind of on top of you and you haven't got a voice, there are people just like you who you can find relatively easy via social media now, who you can start to engage with, connect with, grow communities around with. So I think that's step number two is, is first ground yourself in some of these ideas and then, and then second, start trying things. One of the things I measure, one of the things I measure here in terms of success in 90 Seconds 3Y is how many people have, feel like they can have good ideas and really pursue them? Part of the, the way we as an institution are going to shift is, is if we make sure that a lot of ideas come from a lot of places and, and we try them out. And so we, we really realize that this, this is why the Ice Bucket Challenge is such a bad ambition for our sector, which is we all shouldn't <laughs> be seeking this big you know, occasional tidal wave. We should be just drip, drip, dripping new power throughout the year and over time, that actually, I suspect, will add up to a much greater volume. Um, I uh, I can't. I just have to ditto Henry on all of those things, particularly by this book. Um, it is clearly written for practitioners in the field, and uh, each chapter. I mean, it's well organized. It's well written. Tons of examples, many of which um, Henry shared with you today. So I, um, I just wanted to thank you, Henry. Uh, just I think that the work you're doing at the Y um, 
is all of the things you talk about and um, you kind of embody the narrative of your book. And so I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing and for sharing some of your insights with us today. Well, thank you. And I just want to say in return, I think one of the great privileges of, of the work we've been doing is the chance to spend so much time with people who are in the nonprofit sector. And you think about the, the world we're living in right now and the, and the stakes of the times we're in, the choice that your listeners make to spend their days essentially advancing the world's causes in a better direction, that, that work is, is so important and so critical. And, and I know as a practitioner, it's never easy. So I'm just thrilled to be a part of this community. Uh, I, I consider it an honor and a privilege to work with nonprofit leaders every single day. And it is mission driven for me to be able to offer resources to folks that um, that might, you know, that might help them become more effective or just give them the shot in the arm that they need on a bad day. So um, I, I just want to end by saying that one of the reasons I so wanted to talk to Henry and why this book lit me up. Um, is because I believe so firmly that one of the ways to build a thriving nonprofit is really to engage people, participation, to build this crowd that Henry talked about. And um, I just wanted to make mention that twice a year I offer a free video workshop, and I've got uh, uh, we have it coming out on October sixteenth. It is a um, a four part video series. It it is free. Uh, you can share it, watch it with your team, watch it with your board, and there's a valuable download that you can use to kind of assess where you are on this kind of spectrum between messy and thriving. And it's available throughout the workshop period, which starts on the 16th and ends on the 26th. And you can sign up for it at thrivingnonprofit.org. And we send you emails and make sure that you know when the new videos are available for you to watch. And during the workshop, we build a community or a crowd, if you will, that's sharing thoughts and ideas about the videos, both at the workshop, the, the workshop website, as well as our Facebook group, Thriving Nonprofits with Joan Gary. So you can join that group at any time. It's a great community of about 33,000 board and staff leaders uh, robust conversations, uh, and where people are really so generous in offering comments and ideas and just good old-fashioned moral support. So um, once again, October 16th, our free video workshop series, How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit, and you can join us. Uh, you can sign up for that at thrivingnonprofit.org. And until then, until next time, I just again want to echo Henry's sentiments and say, um, what a privilege it is to uh, be able to spend my day thinking about ways <laughs> to help you change the world in ways large and small. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.